Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Alok Prasanna Kumar. Uh, my co-host, Saryu Natarajan, could not join us today due to some unforeseen uh, circumstances, but she will be back with us soon. And on today's episode, I'm pleased to announce that we have uh, Mr. Arvind Narayan, who's the author of the book, India's Undeclared Emergency, Constitutionalism and the Politics of Resistance. A little bit of an introduction to Arvind. Arvind is a visiting faculty at the School of Policy and Governance at the Azim Premji University, and he's also visiting faculty at the National Law School of India University. Thank you so much for taking out time to be with us on our podcast here, Arvind, and welcome. Thanks, Alok. Thanks for having me here. Uh, so let's get right into the discussion. I thought this was a fascinating book in the context of the current political moment that India finds itself in. So what, and we usually ask all our guests this, what perhaps specifically prompted you to write this book at this particular time? Yeah, I, I mentioned a bit of this in the acknowledgement section. I think part of the, uh, uh, how, because of being a part of various activist networks in the Bangalore context or the, or the India context, I was called upon to do a presentation looking at the, on the anniversary of the emergence two years ago, you know, and uh, because of that, I did a bit of work and put some readings together. And then I was thinking of the framework of the, uh, of always going, why do we go to the past? Why, I mean, the, the question to me when you're looking at the entire question of the emergency is why is the emergency of 1975 relevant today? And obviously you come to every historical event from the point of view of the contemporary. So I came to the issue of the emergency of the point of view of the contemporary and I saw the parallels. And then I said, this is an interesting frame within which to think of the contemporary moment. And I think one, uh, I, this will dive straight into the point, but I'll just make one quick point and leave it at that, is uh, the parallel between the Maintenance of Internal Security Act then and the UAPA now really came to my mind and how one was in a sense a, a de-jure preventive detention law and one is a de facto preventive detention law in the sense that the Maintenance Internal Security Act under the emergency made no bones of it. That is, under the Maintenance Internal Security Act, the state had the power to, to pick you up on grounds that you may threaten or that, you, you, that, that there was a possibility that you may threaten national security. So there was a, without you having done any deed as it were. But the UAPA has no such framework. But yet people are in jail for long periods of time. So the question of, I mean, is this preventive retention? What is this? Was the question that came to my mind. And the analogy of the prevent of the what's called the undeclared emergency came in at that particular moment in time. And I think just for our listeners who may not be exactly familiar with uh, India's recent history, uh, emergency was declared under the constitution during the prime ministership of Mrs. Indira Gandhi in the year 1975. It lasted for about 18 months. Uh, and it was declared on the, for, on the basis of that there were internal disturbances in India which needed to be addressed. 
There was a suspension of fundamental rights throughout. Uh, there was widespread human rights violations, all of which is kind of well-documented now, but the legal process uh, through which it was done was actually found in India's constitution, which actually provided for the imposition of such an emergency. I suppose the idea under our constitution was that it'll only be used in situations of war or widespread you know, internal revolt of some sort. And actually the constitution was amended after the emergency was lifted by the new government, which came into the picture, to didn't, which didn't want it to make it easier. But I sort of, I think this is a term which uh, has cropped up in popular discussion that it's an undeclared emergency. So perhaps maybe uh, if you could sort of discuss a little bit as to why this term best describes the situation that we're in as an undeclared emergency. Yeah, one uh, one text we can go to a recent text is uh, Tarnab Kaidan's article where he makes the point that if you look at the Indian democratic trajectory, the two moments of the lowest point with respect to Indian democracy, one is of course the, the emergency and second is the contemporary moment. And uh, he looks at it on certain parameters. If you look at it in terms of the, the respect for the freedom of speech and expression, the respect for the freedom of the right to association, look at it in terms of the, the, the way, way uh, dissenting opinions are dealt with. If you look at it the way, uh, to the sense of freedom which journalists have to speak or write at, the, at this particular moment in time or at that particular moment in time, then you get a sense of a parallel which comes in. But perhaps the one, maybe the one analogy which I do use in the book, which I think is a, for me, I thought is very, very useful parallel, is really uh, during the, the question of uh, something slightly more subtle which captures this spirit of the undeclared emergency and the declared emergency. If you talk about the emotional state, which is most prevalent or which best describes the, the, the time period of the emergency, it's really the sense of fear which people had. And fear is a very important notion because what fear does, it's really the enemy of solidarity. If I'm scared, I look to speak to you in the sense that, you know, he's a dangerous radical. Then I'll go into my own shell. If I go into my own shell, then that impedes solidarity, the impedes the right to expression, the right to association, whole range of rights get uh, destroyed if you have a sense of fear that I could be picked up, I could be arrested. And if this is a signature moment or the signature emotion of the emergency, I think it's a sense of fear. And what is what has been described as a midnight knock on the door. And 100,000 people were arrested during the emergency. So it was not a, it was not a abstract fear. It was a real fear. But if you were in any sense critical of the regime, you could get picked up, you could get targeted, you could get uh, silenced. And the way that's illustrated actually to me, it came to me very, very powerfully and very, very, very uh, beautifully and very, very movingly in an open letter written by a man called Bhimsen Sachar, who's actually the father of... of uh, the chief justice, the former chief justice of the Delhi High Court, Rajendra Sachar, of the Sachar Committee fame. And Bhimsen Sachar actually had a very illustrious pedigree and illustrious lineage. He was a freedom fighter for many, many years, after which he was the chief minister of Punjab. He was the governor of Andhra Pradesh. And he's retired at 82. Again, I think in your mind, you can make all the analogies, age 82, right? And 82, the emergency is declared. And he, being a freedom fighter, of course, writes an open letter. And the open letter he writes, it's a, it's a very a very moving letter, broadly makes the point that uh, the declaration of the emergency has converted us, in, as in India, into some form of a communist society, where people today 
are scared of speaking out loud. They're scared they could love the midnight knock on the door to the point that he makes. Of course, what happens the moment he puts the letter out, at age 82, he's picked up under the Maintenance Internal Security Act and arrested. And why do we know why he was arrested? Again, this is so interesting. This is only, this is only the, the, the declared emergency point makes this very clear because post the declared emergency, the Janta government uh, established a commission of inquiry called the Shah Commission. And in the Shah Commission, uh, the depositions uh, indicated that the order to arrest Beams and Chacha came from Indira Gandhi. And if you look at even the, the detention order, it's produced verbatim with the open letter which Beams and Sachar wrote. Right? So you get a sense of that. That element of fear has been the integral dimension of the emergency. And I think today, I think uh, again, you, Alok, you should congratulate, congratulate yourself on having this uh, podcast in this in this in this in this time of fear, where uh, people who generally not want to talk openly against this particular government as well, and that's that's the sense that we have we have all around us, you know, and we know that Mr. Akar Patel, who's uh, who speaks out, uh, is on a no fly no fly list. Tisa Satulva, actually the most, most important figure we're to talk about is Tisa Satulva. And look at the uh, Zakia Jafri uh, judgment, right? The, what the judgment documents, tragically, is someone who has fought as a foot soldier of the Indian constitution, right? And, you know, in a, as, as Falina Rima described her as a foot soldier of the Indian constitution. And so someone who speaks up is in, char, is in danger of getting arrested by this particular uh, regime. That's that's the that's the analogy which I think between the declared emergency and the, and the undeclared emergency. That's a great point, uh, Arvind, and I think it should prompt people who think about the constitution. And this is this is, I suppose, in some senses, perhaps I've been partly guilty of it. It is to say that we do a very textual analysis of the constitution, and we say an undeclared emergency is an oxymoron. Right, Because for us, an emergency is only an emergency because it is formally declared. There is a proclamation issued under the constitution which says, you know, you can no longer do this or all these rights are suspended. But I suppose, and I think this is perhaps the true power of what your book shows, is this idea that sometimes it's the emotion we should inform the constitutional, understand the moment of the, the rather, understand the, uh, uh, the constitutional moment that we're living in rather than just looking at the text or the legal. And of course, they play an important role, but it's this fear. And I think to sort of draw a perhaps, a, not a neat line, but an analogy, I suppose, on the basis of what you're saying is perhaps the Bhima Koregao uh, case, right? Uh, and this is something that you speak about to set the context for the book. Uh, we have an instance of, again, like as you pointed out, you hinted at this right at the start, under the Maintenance of Internal Security Act, you are preventively detained. But under the UAPA, you are allegedly detained for offenses that you have committed, but the trial never begins. There is no charge sheet framed. Bail is simply denied for basically no other reason that bail should be denied. Um, and what parallels, what similarities, and maybe what are the interesting differences that you could perhaps draw in the context of something which is current and ongoing, like the Bhima Koregao case, with what happened during emergency. Yeah, that's a, I think that's an important and an interesting uh, question. I think the, one of the, the signature dimensions of the emergency, of course, is that the political leadership 
by and large, right from the Dwani to the apart from the CPI, the other political leaders were all in jail. Right? And for us, as of now, the political leadership is obviously still very much that Mr. Rahul Gandhi is going into Bharat Chodo Yatra and people, other people are doing different things in their in their in their own own ways. Of course, subject to the ED and the way the way that's a different way, right? In which that the, the power of the, the political uh, opposition is being constrained or is being limited. That's that's and that's that's another another discussion altogether. But I think the the point which you raise is about the the question of what happens to the question of civil society voices and why does the government deem, deem them to be a great threat? That's the question which really, really troubled me. What is this figure called the urban axle? Why is the urban axle feared so much? Why is the uh, urban axle seen as a great threat as far as this, this particular regime is concerned? You know? And um, so I thought of taking up, in fact, I look a little closely at this, at the Bhima Korigama 16 and seeing what is it what are the forms of resistance that the Bhima Koregaon 16 really embody in their persons? And I came to the, if you broadly, of course, the overlapping areas, if you broadly, there are five, five categories you can think of the, the BK-16 and the, the forms of resistance that they, they embody. The first, I think the very important one actually is the entire question of, the, uh, of a certain form of a Dalit resistance. Uh, if you look at the Kabir Kalamans, Kabir Kalamans is formed in the in the aftermath of Gujarat 2002. Uh, if you look at the Sudhir Davle, who's again who takes the idea that the issue of caste and the issue of class need to be interlinked, need to be seen as work together, work work together on both these issues, as it were. And Anantaltumde, Anantaltumde, of course, a much broader figure is an intellectual who means a lot other than the, the the Dalit issue alone. But just if you take the Dalit issue at just the, at this particular moment. Uh, his imagination of the of the of Dalit politics is really to say that uh, we need to think of caste and classes coming together. And fundamentally, you go back to what uh, Ambedkar said in uh, what Congress and Gandhi had done to the untouchables. He said, if Hindu Raj ever comes to this country, it will be the greatest calamity we've ever, ever faced. You know, so there's that understanding which really underlies the Dalit activism. Which is a very important strand of uh, of the BK sixteen uh, BK sixteen figures, and again, why I make this point is that uh, I think if you look at the the Dalit issue in a broad sense, uh, politically, there is definitely the question of appropriability and definitely the question of appropriating the the Dalit imagination of Dalit caused by various forms of symbolism. But what the the BK sixteen what the Dalit activism of BK sixteen uh, embodies is something which cannot be appropriated. They're talking about an Ambedkar, uh, an Ambedkar who can't, who can't be reconciled with an imagination or vision of the of a Hindu Rashtra. And that's an important kind of a voice, which is really sought to be uh, strangulated or it's sought to be made, made an example of. I'll put it made an example of, because they, end of the day, there are four people I'm talking about, but they embody a larger voice, which is there in this country, which is what this regime, in a sense, perceives as a, as a big threat. The second point, of course, is the entire question of the Adivasi activism, which is Father Stan Swami, Mahesh Raut, as well as Sudha Bharadwaj, in, uh, Sudha Bharadwaj as well. And again, you go back to Father Stan's uh, book, uh, uh, I'm, not, I'm Not a Silent Spectator. The point he makes again is a very, uh, very, very important point. He says again, 
Again, it's kind of a, it's an activist narrative. He says you go to the villages in Jharkhand. He says an entire generation of Adivasi youth is not there. His point is they're in jail. So because of which he files a case in the in the in the in the in the Jharkhand High Court, basically uh, on the question of uh, the the wrongful arrest of the of of Adivasi youth. You know. And so there's a way in which, I mean, he embodies that spirit of saying that, you know, the Adivasis are there and uh, their lives are also being targeted by this particular, uh, this particular government. And the third form, which I, which I look at, is the entire question of uh, legal activism. Again, if you look at uh, 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 Arun Ferreira is actually very, very beautiful. If any people haven't read it, uh, Colors of the Cage, very beautiful memoir of Colors of the Cage. Uh, Vernon Gonzalez's work, as well as, of course, Sudha Bharadwaj's work, uh, you see the fact that lawyers, again, are a very central dimension of resistance or keeping in keeping alive a constitutional imagination. Now, again, that's something which you write, you see that the regime sees as a certain kind of a threat. And I, again, there are many, many examples we can give of this, but I'll just make that, that quick point of, uh, of the... Uh, of threat seen as far as lawyers are concerned. The fourth one, which I think is very important, is civil liberties activism. Look at Gautam Navalakar's work and look at Rona Wilson's work. What is it that they're talking about? They're talking about issues which nobody else talks about, which with uh, Thompson, E.P. Thompson called this the state within the state or the secret state. Right? They're talking about the, uh, the, the excesses or the violations by the army, the military, the police, the intelligence agencies, the hard the hard, uh, the hard uh, core of the state, which often, when we talk about the state, we don't talk about that. And civil liberties, activism such as this, which brings that to light. And especially in difficult contexts, be it Kashmir, be it the Northeast, be it Chhattisgarh, be it Jharkhand, the people who have been talking about it are the civil liberties activists. They're very minority voice. But obviously, the kind of critique they put forward is still an important one because the state finds it... Uh, Difficult to digest. If you look at recently, even uh, uh, the, the Kashmir and the rest of Kuram Parvez, you get a sense of how important the civil liberties voice uh, continues to be and how the state continues to target that particular voice. And the final point, final grouping, which targeted under the BK 16 kind of a framework, is the broadly put, the intellectuals or the or, or academics. And here again, I mean, there's a question which, I, which has always troubled me. I mean, if you look at most of the BK 16, Father stands from 82 years old or 81 years old when he's picked up. Uh, whatever I was, 80 plus years. How is the state perceiving people of this age as any kind of threat at all? And the answer to that actually is there in uh, in uh, whatever I was, uh, autobiography, uh, collection of poetry, which you, again, if people haven't read, you should read it. Where again, the way he puts it, he says that uh, a political prisoner only knows the meaning of hope, does not know the meaning of despair. And the range of poetry which captures, for example, what is it like uh, to keep alive a spirit of hope in prison. But the point that uh, whatever uh, there's a very interesting introduction to that book, but Nugugi Wantongo was, was the Kenyan Kenyan uh, writer, in which he says that the point of the work of the intellectual is that the ideas of the intellectual can't be kept imprisoned by a prison. Those ideas traverse the walls of the walls of the prison as it were. So again, it's the the question of the idea of targeting ideas, which seems to be at the heart of what this regime uh, is really about. So you get a sense of, again, the point I'll make, you get a sense of uh, the imagination 
which is basically at war with all forms of diversity. So there's certain forms of diversity which are really being, uh, which, which the state seems to be as troubling and challenging, and the state seems to want to clamp down upon. And that's the BK-16 story in, uh, in short. And uh, this is perhaps where also a good point, I think, to jump into the next sort of theme that I want to discuss a little bit, uh, which is, and you mentioned this a little bit prior, which is Zakia Jafri, the judgment in that context. And as a lawyer, and you're also a lawyer, and uh, I suppose a lot of our audience will also be lawyers. I think one thing that has been remarked upon quite uh, vocally, and I suppose in a sense, there is a growing chorus about this, is uh, what was just perhaps maybe one judgment which broke the uh, uh, you know, uh, cause of uh, civil liberties during the emergency, which is the ADM Jabalpur versus Shivkan Shukla case. We have like about a one ADM Jabalpur a month these days. I mean, I'm not trying to be facetious, but I'm just, I was just looking through what, okay, which particular judgment should I want to raise with uh, Arvind a little while ago? And uh, I was like, this list could be a podcast for each one of those judgments. But I think since you mentioned Zakia, Zakia Jafri, uh, perhaps it would be a good point to jump off into our discussion, perhaps as to how we've sort of seen the judiciary would you say it's it's a failure again or the judiciary just repeating patterns that we have come to accept from it? Yeah, I think this has been the, perhaps again, when you're talking about the emergency or the undeclared emergency, and again, we're looking at, obviously, as a lawyer, the idea of the constitutional forms mm. and the idea that the judiciary, when they execute overreaches, Mm. The judiciary should come in as a check on that point is the most important safeguard we have. Mm. And again, you reference the uh, the emergency, right? And mm. again, at this point, I think is worth noting mm. in terms of the emergency itself. What was the the failure of the Supreme Court? Mm. What was the failure of the Supreme Court? Again, what uh, when I went back to the judgment, what troubled me, what shocked me, is if you look at the the ADM Double Court judgment. We're not looking at the constitutionality of the Maintenance Internal Security Act. Mm. We're only making a simple point. We're saying the Maintenance of Internal Security Act has certain provisions. And those provisions need to be complied with. Nine high courts, Justice Kanna's dissent makes the point that nine high courts basically said that, you know, end of the day, Maintenance Internal Security Act is a law, and the provisions of the law should be complied with. The state chooses to deprive a person uh, preventively state chose to preventively detain a person. Meaning that if the Maintenance Internal Security Act says that the appropriate detaining authority is a district magistrate, the det detention order should be signed by the district magistrate. And it should be signed. It can't be an unsigned order. The grounds as far as the uh, as far as the the, uh, the statute is concerned should be made out in, the, in, that, in that order itself. So the Supreme Court basically says that there's no need for conformity with the Maintenance Internal Security Act. And that's the failure it's not a failure of, a, of, the, of the constitution. It's actually a much more fundamental failure. It's a failure of law. You're saying that we don't need to, you're saying that the state does not need to comply with the very law that is enacted. They're not challenging the constitutionality of MISA. They're saying MISA does not need to be complied with. And that to me was the biggest uh, shock of that particular of that particular judgment. Again, I think the point to make, again, the, reason, the, the way I have, uh, the way I have looked at the book again is that, uh, there are, of course, I mean, okay, very right, right? There is ADM Jabalpur then, and then many judgments we can talk about today. And I think you're right in terms of, I mean, the, the judgments we can think of immediately, because the Zakir Jafri judgment, with the Himan Shukmar judgment, 
and uh, the, the constitutional, the PMLA judgment, a range of judgment from the Supreme Court has abdicated that particular responsibility which is which it has, which is to say that you know the executor must function within the limits of the constitution. Again, you go back to we go back to the ADM Rebelpur judgment, uh, Justice Kanal dissent. He makes one point. He goes back to uh, Dr. Baker's words and he makes the point that end of the day. The executive has to also conform to the, to the constitution. If the executive can't do exactly what it wants, it has to work within the, the limits of the constitution itself. And that's the important kind of a point which the the pass, the free pass seems to be given to the uh, to the executive in the in the current uh, in, the, in the in the in the current moment. But I think just I'll just make one point over here, which is that the way I've kind of uh, structured the book again is. Uh, Again, the idea of what uh, I think Gautam called, Gautam Bhatia called the contrapuntal, right? The contrapuntal imagination, or the dissenting imagination, right? So, Indian government with the majority judgment is something which we rightly should criticize. But in a time such as this, maybe the place to go to is the minority judgment. We need to go back to the justice corners of the, of, uh, of the past and see what are the imagination that they had. How can we take forward that imagination in the contemporary context. Again, uh, the ADM double put judgment, again, if people haven't read it, you should read Justice Kanna's dissenting judgment. He ends by quoting uh, the Chief Justice of the, the US Supreme Court, Charles Evan Hughes, who says a dissent in a court of last resort is an appeal to the brooding spirit of the law, is an appeal to the intelligence of a future day. When, uh, uh, when the court is appealing to a spirit which is not yet there, it may be everybody today might think you're completely wrong, but the future will vindicate you, is the way that he phrases it. Again, I want to go back a little bit to that, because uh, why Justice Khanna is important is, I think, the maybe even today more than ever before, we're very presentist in our orientation. Right? We can see, immediately we see the regime around us, we see what they're saying, we say, hey, we don't want to get on the wrong side, and that's the way we see see our lives. If you look at Justice Gunnar's dissent, you realize maybe we should have a slightly longer historical imagination. Then you'll see everything in a very different light as it were. Because you have to see the fact that you will also be judged by history. And that's what I, I think our judges need to see. That it's not just the judgment of the current regime or the current moment which matters. It's the judgment of how history will look at you. And again, it's very, again, I go a lot into Justice Kanna's dissent, where uh, uh, Nani Palkiwala makes the point, right? He says that, of course, uh, Justice Kanna's passed over for chief justiceship, etc. And he says, to a man of the stature of Justice Kanna, the chief justiceship would add nothing. Right? And so he's, if you think of an icon of the Indian judiciary today, it's Justice Kanna. So my point again is, how do we, what are the creative possibilities we have? How do we, as you know, as academics within the field of law, how do we, in a sense, uh, encourage judges to think of the constitution as a document that they want to uphold and that they should have the courage to uphold because they want to be judges like Justice Khanna. Again, I quote actually uh, Justice Yatinder Singh at a you know you know you know I think in a conference of judges. Again, he makes a point. He is talking to a range of judges. He references Justice Khanna's judgment and he says. May you all go on to become judges like Justice Kanna. So he's the icon as far as the Indian judiciary is concerned. So we have to bring that up, I think, again and again. And tell our judges that, you know, history will also look at you. History will judge you. And you can't have a completely presentist outlook alone, you know. 
10 years down the line, how will you be seen? Does that legacy, does your legacy matter? Do you want to be seen in that light itself, right? And I think some of our judges have that imagination. So we need to be able to that, that imagination of judges and say, hey, you know, your fidelity to the constitution, you will be a judge with justice come up. No, that's a great point. And uh, actually, this was something that uh, I was doing while writing something else. I just wanted to sort of see how many times has the Supreme Court actually cited ADM Jabalpur at any point of time? And I realized it's almost never. But Justice Khanna's dissent and its full knowledge that it's a dissent gets cited again and again, no fewer than 30, 40 times. I, I was checking this a few years ago. So it, it sort of speaks to the idea that there is power in that dissent. And I think you may, and this is perhaps, I suppose, the point that the judiciary, and as one hopes the judges of the Supreme Court perhaps, uh, should get, which is the idea that what you're sort of putting down in, in words today, is, it may not be right just because it's here in the majority. Now, the rightness or wrongness of it will be judged. And as you point out from a longer time frame, and perhaps that is where I suppose advocacy, that is where resistance should focus itself on looking at the long-term picture. How do we build in a different way? And I suppose this is where I want to jump to the next big thing that I want to discuss about your book, which is, it's not just a litany of all the problems in India today. I think that any op-ed will consume. And I think this is where this fascinating part of your book, which is about how, what does resistance look like in an, in an undeclared emergency? Uh, and, and I suppose in some senses, the, the pressure to think about this comes from the fact that constitutional modes or purely, let me put it this way, purely constitutional modes of resistance are not proving to be effective in the sense that maybe I'll just sort of give a laundry list of it. You don't have a judiciary which is showing itself up to be sufficiently independent. You don't have opposition parties which have the ideological coherence because if one third of your party can easily be bought over by the ruling party just on the basis of money and ministerial posts, it clearly sees, shows that there was no reason for them to be in your party in the first place, just convenience. Um, and perhaps, of course, maybe even the existing civil society institutions being weakened by what we just discussed uh, in, the, in the earlier part of this discussion. Maybe we should we can talk a little bit about where you sort of see the resistance and the cultural aspect of the resistance. If you could sort of talk a little bit about how you discuss this in the book. You know, it's a very... Uh... It's a very important question you're raising. Again, because the I think uh, a lot of the uh, I think one of the reasons why we find ourselves in a situation of hopelessness is also because we are in that sense present just in our in our outlook in an, in a perspective itself. So actually, it's very I just I was reading this a little while ago. Uh, there's this, uh, the last piece of, it's not there in the book actually, but the last uh, piece of work which uh, Ambedkar did, which was a short note he wrote called Frustration. It was written in his, in his own, own uh, handwriting. You know, it was not typed or anything in those lines. And uh, the note communicates a lot, right? When you say frustration, right? And he says, uh, I'll just quote, he says, the untouchables are the weariest most loathed and the most miserable people that history can witness, that is spent and sacrificed people. To use the language of Shelley, they are pale for weariness of climbing heaven and gazing on earth, wandering companionless among the stars that have a different birth. So if you see that particular quotation, the two parts of it, right? Firstly, he's talking about, you know, he's communicating an utter sense of frustration, right? The most miserable people that history can witness, spent and sacrificed people. But the next part of it suddenly gets Shelley. 
and he's talking about the fact that you know he's comparing them to stars which are climbing heaven and ordering companionless among the stars that have a different birth so from that i learned one thing that uh, sometimes within uh, we'll get to your point in a little while though, but sometimes if you find that within your own culture within your own i wouldn't say culture within your own context you don't have the resources to look at the contemporary to challenge the contemporary you should be able to look outside and then he goes on to talk about emerson talk about uh, talk about arnold talk about a range of figures then you get a sense that as far as he's concerned even if within the even within the culture that he's inhabiting at that moment it's a it's a wall of casteism there are other resources you draw upon so that that imagination one must always have saying that you know and that's the only thing which will keep you alive saying that you know if within the contemporary you find for example utter depression in going to court and find that each case after case the judges are deciding against you you should still be able to go because if you should be able to draw that strength from your from a historical imagination and a and a and a comparative imagination i'll just make two points over here again a book which this book i do reference actually it's a book called the wall and the gate by a uh, israeli human rights lawyer called michael fard again those who haven't read it i'd suggest you read it if you get a chance to see any of michael fard's videos on on the on the net you should just you should just see it you know and michael fard uh, again he says that you know he's been challenging they've been challenging the the legal policies of the israel since 1948 you know the, the range of israeli human rights lawyers he says in almost all cases all cases we've been defeated yet we go there again and again to court why do we go he says we go to court again and again to prison indictment of the regime that is apartheid right and this he has a, that almost a magnificent sense of hope where he says that he says i do each time we do we 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 produce an indictment of the israeli state we are putting one more hole in its in its in its existence when that when that will all amount to something i don't know but through all these collective works not just mine his his viewpoint of course he says all these collective efforts of different people are resisting at some point the regime will collapse and his point is that you look at 1989 the collapse of the berlin wall did anybody expect it at that moment nobody expected it so the way in which we don't know the future but we do know that our imperative to, to resist can't be can't be forgotten because we think that is utterly hopeless that's one point the second point of course on the question of hope i think is uh, it's interesting huh? you speak to people in the most difficult circumstances they're often the most hopeful you speak to you speak to you listen to anything said by either gautam navalaka or varavar ra they communicate that passion and that hope which is like undimmed you know it's an undimmed sense of uh, uh, almost uh, spirit i wouldn't necessarily call it optimism spirit that we can do something so that's one kind of a resource i think it's very very important to keep alive that is the historical and the comparative me okay i'll just make one one more point on this one more point on this is uh, the other figure who i did go to again in the, in, the, in the book is a uh, is a german jewish labor lawyer called ernst frankel Ernst Frankel was a German Jewish labor lawyer who was practicing law in Nazi Germany. The Nazis begin to uh, strangulate various dimensions of the collective life of the Jews, including the right of advocates to practice. Initially, the the right of advocates who not couldn't serve in the World War couldn't serve in World War One is completely taken away. Then the right of all advocates to practice is taken away. So Frankel is working in that framework. 
And uh, in the middle of that, he's writing this, this book called The Dual State, which is trying to conceptualize what is the Nazi, Nazi regime about? And he comes up with this idea that the Nazi regime is an amalgam of two dimensions. One is what he calls the prerogative state, which is unbounded lawlessness, and the other is a normative state, which is state bound by rule of law. And he says these two regimes coexist, even in Nazi Germany. And the reason he makes that assertion is, of course, is that he says that at the end of the day, if you're a capitalist state, law is very important, certainty is very important. You can't have an unbounded arbitrary regime. You can have an arbitrary regime within a rule of law framework. You can have an overlapping, two overlapping regimes, but they have to overlap. It can't be complete arbitrariness. That's the point he's making. So then, of course, how do you move? How do you get your plans? That's the question he addresses. From the question of uh, the uh, the arbitrary state to the from the no, from the uh, prerogative state to the normative state. That's the question he's trying to he's trying to address. Again, there's a great book on this called Legal Sabotage. It's a kind of a biography of uh, Ernst Frank. So again, if people haven't read it, it's a fantastic book. You guys should people should just uh, try and uh, read it. Sorry, I didn't I didn't address your main question, which is cultural. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Take your time. Uh, so we'll get to your cult the cultural question we come to. Actually, this is an important point because again, as uh, you notice the way I went on, I got to the cultural question last, which happened in even a stronger way in the first presentation I made, right? And first presentation I made, I made the, of course, the, the lawyer error uh, or the arrogant point of saying everything begins with the constitution, right? And that's the, 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 the Indian constitution was the starting point. Of a, of a challenge to traditional forms of authority and traditional forms of a hierarchy. And that's the starting point we have a resistance. That, that was the viewpoint I took. I was challenged very strongly by a close friend, uh, uh, Madhu Bhushan, who's a part of the feminist movement in, in, in Bangalore. And I said, see, I don't agree with you. She said, culture is a very strong resource. I said, tell me how, how do you think culture is a resource? Then she pointed me to Basava, Basavarna's works. And then I went after that, you know, I read Basava. I read Basavarna, I read, uh, uh, again, if people haven't read it, to read uh, Karnad's, uh, Karnad's work, uh, Talidanda, uh, which is broad, which is the life of, of Basavarna in the 12th century. Right? And again, you, you read Basavarna's life in the 12th century, and uh, he says in Adlagnala, uh, Kranti. So it's not a marriage, it's a revolution. Right? So we're talking about inter-caste marriage at the moment of time. So you look at that and you say, why, wait a minute. 12th century, Basavarna is defending, or is, or is uh, not even defending, is, is blessing an inter-caste marriage. And today, the UP and Karnataka pass a law which criminalizes people marrying across lines of religion. How is that even possible? Our culture has such resources we need to go to, was the question which came to me immediately, right? And so that, I'd still say, it's a, it's a point of my limitation, where I think this uh, getting back to the question of you know bilinguality and the question of bilinguality not just knowing two languages but comparable in two cultures something I I struggle with you know I've done a lot more in the last year I've done a lot more reading in, in terms of in Canada I've been reading Puen uh, and and, and Karnad as well as, as uh, our new friend Vasudendra so getting more comfortable with uh, with reading in Canada it takes me a long time but it's been enormously productive. Then you realize that, you know, there's so much of dissenting possibilities in the imagination in each of the writers. Just one point in Kuempu, right? If you read Malegalili uh, Madhumagalu, it's a brilliant, brilliant account from the point of view of, a, of, for example, a Dalit character. 
Dalit women characters, Dalit male characters, the character called Gutti is fantastic, right? And you get a sense of, I mean, that is a descending imagination, which is there in, in, in Karna literature, for example, which I know a little bit of, not enough, but a little bit of, you know. And if you read again the book, which we, at the book discussion we were in today, actually, I just, shall I talk two minutes about that? Or? Please, please go ahead. I will contextualize it for our listeners when uh, we put the description. Okay, okay. So this book called Tejo Tungabhadra by a Karna writer called Vasudendra. And the book actually, Tejo is a river, is, is a, Lisbon is based on the river Tejo. And Tungabhadra, of course, we know. And the, the journey spans the, the, the journey from Portugal to, to India. And the story goes something like this. Uh, there's a, the Jewish community is subjected to persecution in Spain. Because of the persecution of the Jews in Spain, they pack the bags and they land up in Portugal, where they're given a sense of hospitality. They, they, they start printing. They're, they're, they're printing books at that moment in time. In, and Bibles, strangely enough, in, in Portugal. And there's a love story between uh, between this uh, the uh, the Jewish girl and and a Portuguese and, and a Christian Christian boy in in, in Portugal. That's the important part of the story. But the point of the story I want to get to is this, right? So the uh, they're in Portugal, and suddenly there's a marriage which is proposed between this the Spanish king and the Portuguese queen. But one of the conditions of the marriage is the king basically says that expel the Jews. From Portugal, right? And so that's how then they're at the end of the known world right, at that moment in time. So that's when one of uh, the, 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 the boy gets onto this ship and lands up in India. That's, that's the, the, the arc of the story. But the point of the story is really this, right? I mean, Vasudendra, through that book, is really talking about what does it mean to resist? What does it mean to stand up for the, the faith that you believe in? What does it mean to love across lines of religion and caste? That's the principle to that as far as the book is concerned. And if you read that book closely, you'll find a descending imagination in that. And this will get me into a lot of trouble, but I think you read Parva by Bhairapa. There's a strong descending imagination in Parva, by Parva as well. You know? So I think if you look closely at a range of literature, you'll find that. And again, go back to, uh, of course, uh, uh, Karnad's uh, Tughlaq. Again, what a brilliant account of the of the contemporary, right? What a brilliant account where uh, Mr. Tughlaq is saying that, you know, uh, is for promising them prayers or telling them you should pray here, you pray there. They're saying, we don't want prayer, we want food, right? And so that's uh, many, many ways in which you can go to culture as a way of, uh, of igniting more popular imagination. And I think the, the way the constitution and culture come together is also an important one. Because again, I think the difference between, say, the Indian constitution and maybe, I think, the Sri Lankan constitution, for sure, is the Indian constitution is, is popularly owned by a range of subaltern and marginalized groupings. In particular, the Dalit community has a strong ownership of the constitution. You go to many, many villages throughout South India, the image of Baba Sahib Ambedkar standing with a constitution in his hand. That is a symbol that there's an ownership of this particular uh, document as it were. But the ideals which which underlie it are not that well known. I mean, of course, I think, again, this is the point of song, right? You go to the, your point about culture, you go to the film court, right? And you see the film court, you get a sense of, you know, how the there's a certain imagination of Baba Sahib Ambedkar in, 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 in songs, 
a range of Dalit singers as well. So I think a range of cultural resources you can go to, 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 to draw upon to, to, in, in, to expand this entire question of a dissenting imagination. So I think the dissent within the constitution possible, the dissent in culture possible, and dissent where the constitution is, becomes a part of culture as well. And I think that's a great point because uh, two things immediately pop to mind. And I think I'll, I'll just mention those. Uh, one, of course, is uh, the scholar D.R. Nagaraj, uh, who talks about how so much of our understanding of caste kind of ignores the anti-caste approach to caste within uh, many castes themselves, in the sense that uh, it, it, it's, it's no use looking at, uh, you know, uh, modern texts when, when you ignore all the old texts which and like you mentioned starting with Baswana Baswana was just, just because the movement couldn't go beyond that one particular marriage that they attempted and uh, they were driven out literally driven out on the pain of death because they, they were considered to have the audacity of uh, conducting an intercaste marriage the movement didn't end there it continued it morphed it spread to various ways and that's sort of what D.R. Nagaraj talks about the second thing that I sort of, it sort of made me think by your, your invocation of court was also that uh, it's it's alive in our popular culture. Uh, I think I think people kind of are unfair towards a lot of popular mainstream media representations. Uh, and I think there is a tendency to put them in various brackets by just looking at the trailers. But if you look, and, and this is because a lot of people are familiar with these two films, they've been super block it, blockbusters. Something like RRR, you may have a problem with, say, some, some imagery there, but the underlying message is one of resistance. You're celebrating an Adivasi hero. You're celebrating a, a freedom fighter in some ways. And it, that, that is perhaps the reason why there is resonance with these concepts. People feel the need to push back against power. Uh, likewise, KGF, which is dismissed as a gangster story, but it is actually the story of a man who liberates people working as slaves in a mine. So and that is, I think, perhaps the most important message that to look for sustenance through uh, culture. And I think we're sort of almost out of time, but I'll end with this one final question, perhaps, where in as much as we can locate perhaps uh, sources of resistance from culture, what is the path forward for constitutional resistance? We have seen we've seen limited successes here and there, right? We've seen, for instance, a Section 377 struck down. We have seen, for instance, a very wide-ranging definition of the right to privacy that informs something like even abortion rights in India, though there is still a long way to go. We have seen judgments like the Nalsa case, which has given legal status to a lot of India's transgender community. There are these small pockets of success. What perhaps can be the way forward, uh, and maybe that will be the closing theme of this uh, podcast, what could be the way forward? How do we marry the cultural basis for resistance with the constitutional methods of resistance? Well, that's, a, that's a great question. And perhaps one way forward is to take a lesson from the 377 story itself. And made this point many, many times that we've seen the, the battle against 377 as a social legal and a political battle. Because end of the day, the point of a provision of law going would not have made a difference to anybody's life. You know? But the point of a, a provision going, uh, which in a sense is also about challenging the stereotypes in society was a very, very important one. And again, the, the 377, I think a lot of the 
thinking of the challenge really came from the activism, the grassroots level and, and ground level. You know? I'll give you one example, really. And when, for example, as lawyers, the argument was made that you you that you challenge 377 on the basis of the right to privacy, the, the response from the grassroots level communities was, well, that's all very well for you to talk, you know. We're not English-speaking, we're not elite. We don't have right to privacy, we don't even have a home. What privacy are you talking about? And so that's when we had to go back, in a sense, to the drawing board and see if there's another dimension of privacy other than the idea of zonal privacy. And that's when we found, both in the South African jurisprudence as well as in the US jurisprudence, the idea of privacy as not just zonal, but also decisional and relational. And that Nas, Nas picked up on the thematic, and obviously uh, Nas picked up on the thematic because it was there in previous judgments right from Govind and, Govind and others. And of course, Kutuswami took that to its uh, logical conclusion, saying that we have a far more wide-ranging notion of privacy. So I think the point is, to what extent can we think of a battle which is not just legal, but also social and political at the same time? And I think we saw the limitations of this in particular in the, in the, in the hijab case in the Karnataka High Court. I think uh, everybody is familiar by now that uh, as far as the, the, the hijab case was concerned itself, it, uh, it, uh, the, the petitioners began with the argument that the hijab is the central practice of, uh, of religion, of, uh, of Islam. And I think the point which we were stressing, which, which, which would have come across, not we were stressing, we spoke to communities, point easily come across, is actually as far as the, the girls themselves are concerned, their point would be that it's a part of our right to expression, right to autonomy, right to decision, uh, and it's a part of a part of a right to dignity. That's the way they would have phrased it. So you don't get stuck within this trap of saying, "What is?" It's a question of religious expression. It's it's a broader uh, right uh, which is located in the in in a, in, a, in expression and dignity. So I think one part of it is how can a legal battle be invigorated by a social or a political or, or a cultural dimension. That's the question you're asking me. I'm, I'm saying that it must happen. You know? I'm saying it must happen. There's no way out of making those kind of connections and those kinds of uh, uh, linkages. That's one point. And of course, the second point would be that uh, the battle within the court itself, I don't think we should give up because that space exists and we should utilize the space as long as we, as long as we have it. And as we've seen, even ADM double court, the descending judgment holds sway till today. So if there is something, even within your, even within an existing judgment, you get a dissent. That's a starting point. That's a starting point of saying that, hey, you know, there's a there's a counter voice to what is there. Or like the Nas case, right? If you have a Nas, it's a high court judgment, cultural Supreme Court judgment, and later judgment Supreme Court, which which puts forward a, a more broad-ranging uh, thinking as it were. So the point being that uh, we should continue to continue to work the 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 framework of the law and uh, work it, keeping in mind the precedents which we do have, and seeing how we can imbue this form of life as far as the arguments are concerned. And assume with the with the fact that the hearings will now be telecast on uh, uh, widely publicly, I think there's a we're having an opportunity for constitutional education, which we might never had in the past. And so I think taking the constitution to the people might be one way forward. 
And one way forward is through the arguments. And you, you ensure that you put forward strong arguments, ensure that you educate a range of people on what the basis is. And end of the day, the judiciary decided the way in 2018. They didn't decide it in the, in the absence of a movement on the ground. They only decided it because of the fact that there's a certain kind of momentum which, which, which communicated that this would be the right thing to do. You know? And this would be the right thing to do within, within the terms of the constitution itself. And uh, the, it's a way of deciding which was in harmony with both progressive political, progressive opinion is harmony with the constitution, harmony with the with the with even comparative uh, global global perspectives as well. So I think the we should keep the battle on. Yeah, and I think uh, that that particular example of what you just mentioned, I, I just uh, I just remembered this is the Patalgadi movement, where the Adivasis of Jharkhand carved the provisions of the fifth schedule of the constitution, which protects the rights of Adivasis living in what was then the Chota Nagpur belt. Uh, to push back against the government's efforts to weaken legal regulations which would protect their rights to the forests and to the land and so on. And that movement successfully converted into political change when the BJP government was voted out in the Congress, uh, sorry, the Jharkhand Mukti Morcha government uh, was voted in. And I think it presents this, this powerful example. And Patalgadi, the whole concept of you know the, the the stones, the ancestor stones on which you put in the messages from the uh, to the past. I think that was a very potent cultural artifact in the community. But it was used, which was used for uh, pushing forward constitutional change. I think that that was perhaps an example. And like you sort of said, uh, I think the idea that we have to keep pushing at these institutions, we can't give up. And if I have to pick the two big themes, you know, I started off this conversation initially about what is the problem and what is the solution. But I think the two big themes which have really come through from your book and from our discussion today is one of fear and one of hope. Uh, and, and in the sense that the way to understand our present constitutional moment is to understand the kind of fear that it has engendered in India's polity among people, among a certain class of people, among various classes of people. And perhaps the way out of it is to sort of build that hope and what is what and look for outside of uh, perhaps even our present political moment, where to find uh, hope in this. Uh, we are almost out of time. Uh, but thank you so much, Arvind. I think uh, we had a wonderful discussion. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for taking time out. Uh, and I hope, uh, hopefully there'll be more books on the way and we can have you back on the podcast uh, to discuss more of uh, such themes. I think what we've also given is like a reading list for our listeners. That's probably worth half a library. Uh, so for those of you who'd like to check out, uh, we'll have uh, all the books mentioned by Arvind are in the show list with perhaps links to some of the articles and some of the judgments that we have discussed. Uh, this has possibly been like one of the more interesting constitutional law classes that one has been. So thank you so much, uh, Arvind, uh, for joining us on this uh, podcast. Thanks, Alok. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And before we sign off, thank you so much to Afra Asif, our production assistant, uh, who has been patiently organizing all of this and who will be editing and putting up this episode soon. Thank you all for joining us. Do stay tuned for future episodes of the Ganatantra podcast on the New Books Network.